James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 22. This is the arguably awesome podcast, abundant in analysis and articulate in its admiration for the actions of an audacious, adventurous assassin against his abhorrent adversaries. It's James Bond, Agent 007. Welcome to the cubbyhole. Make yourself comfortable as we continue our voyage across the cinematic life of Bond. We certainly hope you've been enjoying your time with us so far, perhaps as much as Gibbs has been the man with the golden gun. The difference being that the fun doesn't stop with a bullet from Scaramanga. Once you've left our cubbyhole, you're always free to re-enter. You can search our back catalogue of episodes, or of course, you can get more involved on social media. Plenty of show updates, quiz questions, and more over on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Likes and follows, always gratefully received. Also, if you'd like to appear in a future Q branch, the questions branch segment, then do send us your questions, queries, or fan theories, all that good stuff to our correspondence email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 21, Casino Royale, a spectacular reboot for the series with James Bond's character and character flaws unfolding before our very eyes, an exciting new portrayal by Daniel Craig and director Martin Campbell, his uh, success rate now two out of two in his attempts to reinvigorate the franchise. Also, we had the, the great performance by Mads Mikkelsen, bringing his inhaler and some homoerotic charge to the casino, alongside Phil's newly appointed favorite Bond woman, Eva Green. So could they keep the momentum going with Craig's second Bond outing? Can we find some inner peace with this week's episode as we delve into Bond 22, Quantum of Solace? With me, it's the usual hosting team. Now, uh, usually I would find an interesting quotation or an event from the film and cleverly incorporate it into the introductions, but that wasn't possible this time. So firstly, it's the man who watched Quantum of Solace this week. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm, I'm not sure whether this would be offended or to be um, sort of honoured with, with, the, with the intro there. But uh, no, thanks, Martin. I'm, I'm very well this week. Just to run through um, our social media um, shout-outs, you guys have also been getting in touch with us about um, Casino Royale. So um, Shamir Ravji um, was mentioning that it's one of his favourites of the entire series. Steve Spring on Twitter also mentioned that um, he thinks that Casino Royale is a masterpiece um, and obviously one of the very best. Um, just going on to Twitter, um, we've actually surpassed the 400 follower mark now. So just wanted to say thank you to everyone that's followed us, involved us in the kind of Bond community with the conversations and discussions. So thanks everyone for your um, social media interaction. We always do really appreciate it. Um, obviously, if you do want to get involved with a shout out on the show, please do get in touch and let us know. Phil, have we as yet had any entries into our mashed potato sculpture competition? I have asked. We haven't had anything just yet, so we, we are still awaiting the first entry. So please do let us know if you uh, would want to get involved with the mashed potato challenge. Probably worth saying, as it was initially laid out, it was busts of faces of people in the Bond films, which might be quite difficult with mashed potato. So let's let's say any kind of scene or thing in mashed potato is OK. What about if someone just recreates Diamonds Are Forever, the plastic surgery lair, and just fills their, their bath with mashed potato? <laughs> I mean, I did use that photo from Diamonds Are Forever. So, you know, if, if you do need inspiration, that photo is up on social media. So secondly, it's the man who is going to watch a better Bond film next week. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I was actually fast-forwarding to Spectre, which is, I think, the most divisive of the Craig films, perhaps. Uh, and a lot of people, apparently on Twitter, Phil, you were saying, uh, don't particularly rate Christoph Waltz in Spectre. And I wonder if the reason for that is because it's not really Christoph Waltz playing Blofeld. It's actually stuntman Dave Cronley. Do you think that was Dave Cronley's big break in cinema? That was his moment to shine. 
Yeah, it, it was always going to be him and introducing Dave Cronley as Oberhauser or as Blofeld. But then everyone thought that it was Christoph Waltz because he looks a bit like Christoph Waltz. And so then the producers were like, well, let's pretend it is Christoph Waltz and that we got a big star name. And so they just paid Christoph Waltz to do all of the press and the uh, publicity. But actually, the Blofeld in the film, that's just Stuntman Dave. See, I see that's where a lot of the confusion could come from there. Yeah, I, I get that, yeah. I think Dave was also doing the the shadowy Blofeld in the early films as well. That could still be him as a younger man. We've done it. The real Blofeld all this time was just Stuntman Dave. Stuntman Dave, if you are listening to the podcast, please do get in touch and let us know if you you know if you were in uh, Spectre as well. Okay, so it's on to Quantum of Solace now. Over to Adam and Alan. What do they have for the film synopsis? Thank you very much, Martin. So, Quantum of Solace, the 22nd James Bond film, taking its title from the last unadapted short story from the For Your Eyes Only collection. This is directed by Mark Forster, his only Bond film. It's the second appearance from Daniel Craig as 007. Uh, Paul Haggis uh, and Neil Purvis and Robert Wade are once again on script duties, as with Casino Royale. And it's the last Bond film to date to be scored by the great David Arnold. Uh, Quantum was released in October 2008. That's a full 20 years after Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! The film was made on a budget of $200 million and went on to gross $589.5 million worldwide, which is a little bit less than Casino Royale, and the reviews for this film were far more mixed. Uh, So to find out why those reviews were so mixed, let's hand over to the man himself. It's Alan. Where's the gun barrel? Bond does some very dangerous driving on a mountain with boringly named baddie Mr. White in the boot. Cue the instantly forgettable theme song. In Spain, M's bloody livid because Bond's off his rocker and she's missing the horse racing outside. Then her own bodyguard helps Mr. White leg it. We have people everywhere. Before Bond shoots him in an indoor go ape course. Now we're in Haiti somehow, where Bond kills another randomer, catches a lift with vengeful Bolivian agent Camille, and smashes up a boating lake where dodgy energy mogul and her ex-brew Dominic Green, and a man with a stupid fringe, are plotting a military coup, promising a ton of oil to a very bored Felix Leiter and his 70s throwback boss. Now we're in Austria, don't know why, where Bond gate crashes an opera and kills a few more randomers willy-nilly. Bond hooks back up with some bronze silver fox Rennie Mathis and gets smashed on a plane to cure his by now insane jet lag. Over in Bolivia, I think, fetal maniac Strawberry Fields throws Bond a bone for treating her to a swanky hotel. I think she has handcuffs. I hope so. Camille's back to help Bond party poop Green's posh soiree. You two make a charming couple. Your both, what's the expression? Damaged goods? Mathis lasts five minutes before Bond chucks his body in a skip. Out of nowhere, Bond can suddenly fly a plane. He and Camille discover Green's hoarding the country's water and the oil was all fake news, apart from the stuff that's been used to do a goldfinger on poor Straubs. Bond visits Felix in a grotty pub to try and cheer him up, who tips Bond off about an entirely see-through hotel in the desert. James, move your ass. Bond and Camille blow the whole gaff up. Camille avenges her rents by offing a creepy general. Bond drops Green off in the middle of nowhere with a can of something even worse than Red Bull. Camille just sort of buggers off. And Bond goes to Russia to capture Vesper in shady Albanian boo and kiss and make up with Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench. Bond, I need you back. I never left. The end. Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. So, Quantum of Solace. This one, actually, this is only the second time I've watched this film, uh, doing it for this podcast. I watched it in the cinema. It was not my favourite James Bond film, to say the least. Uh, so I didn't add it to my Bond collection. Uh, now, I know this film wasn't helped much by the the writer's strike that was going on at the time. Uh, and I think Mark Forster and uh, Daniel Craig had to finish bits of the script themselves or add pieces onto it. And I think they only had about five weeks to edit the whole movie before it was released. Uh, but in my opinion, I think that doesn't really excuse what we get as the finished product. Um, and I think also Mark Forster hasn't helped himself subsequently in uh, many interviews where he's appeared quite pretentious, shall we say, and uh, dismissive of any of the faults of this film, saying that uh, if the audience doesn't understand it, then it's their fault. It's not his fault. But uh, I put quite a lot of the blame at his door 
we were not very complimentary for Die Another Day, were we? That was another Bond film we were not too keen on. Uh, but at least that one I felt had a storyline. It wasn't a very good storyline, but it was a you could follow at least what was happening. Whereas this one, I think that even some basic techniques are just ignored. I don't know whether that's because Forster wanted to make it look very artsy or whatnot. Uh, so uh, it's certainly not my favorite Bond film. I don't know if, uh, Phil, have you got any other uh, different opinions there? I think this is quite a divisive film in terms of the Bond community. There are some that do enjoy it. For me personally, it's not one of my favorites principally because of the fact, like yourself, I've only really seen it in the cinema and, and watching it for the podcast was the, the second time I've seen it. For me, the film struggles because there are, there are moments in this film where you think actually it's going to be okay and it's, it's actually building something really good. And then it just seems to sort of just tail off. And, and it's, there, are, there are elements that are very clumsy in it as well. There are elements that are, I'd like to compare it to kind of the homework analogy when you've kind of left your homework to the last minute you just think oh I'll just write that it'll be fine I'll just do that and you know just submit it the best part of the entire film is that opening you know the scene where you see the Aston Martin going through the narrow tunnels of Lake Garda and is being chased by the Alfa Romeos and obviously you know it's that 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 great sequence where it's so it kind of draws parallels going back to films like on a Majesty's Secret Service and you kind of get that feeling yes this is going to be superb this is going to be brilliant and then you get the opening credits where it's jack white and alicia keys kind of screaming down a microphone at you and you just think no this this isn't what i was expecting yeah you know what i always go back into this bond film really hoping that i like it because it does have its defenders and i'm a particular fan of the bond films that go really off piste which are more radical and more subversive and which try and embrace a more realistic edge uh, than the usual more formulaic bond films and this is unquestionably a film that is looking to do that unfortunately i never get there and i must confess this is the only Bond film that I don't enjoy watching at all and that I just can't get anything out and see so few, if any, positives from it. And it's a combination of things we've mentioned, essentially. It's a catastrophically underdeveloped screenplay just because they, they were rushing it out. It's incredibly pretentiously and very badly directed by Mark Forster. This just doesn't have the tone, the atmosphere, the feel of a James Bond film on any level. And even the more radical and subversive Bond films, they always have the style of Bond. They always feel like you're watching a Bond film. This just feels like a random mid-noughties action film that happens to have James Bond in it. Yeah, I agree, Adam. And as I've said, I think this film peaks in the opening sort of five minutes where you see the car chase because that is... It's one of the best car chases in the entire series, and it just completely loses the plot from that point onwards. You just think, well, the the villain's really weak. The, the supporting cast seem really weak. It's just there's there's just nothing to work with. There's no focus on the fact that you know Bond is trying to to almost get revenge for Vesper and the fact that he's trying to find her love interest from the previous film. And again, it goes, there are elements of this film, again, that feel like it's going back towards Die Another Day in terms of there's very ropey CGI in this film. We look at the scene where Bond is having the fight with the rogue agent in the, you know, the kind of scaffolding fight. Some of that CGI is extremely dodgy. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the bad CGI. The one that stands out for me is actually the, uh, the plane fight in the Bolivian desert. I mean, and particularly last-minute parachute jump that Bond and Camille do at the end of it. The CGI in that stunt is every bit as bad and unrealistic and alienating as the kite-surfing tsunami and Die Another Day. And yet, because it's not as ridiculous a setup, no one really remembers it in this one. Uh, I want to pick you up very quickly on that opening sequence. Um, you're right, it is the best scene in the film, in a sense. And it is a very effective, adrenalised strip back very quickly edited you know exciting car chase but it's a double-edged sword because it also invokes immediately the shadow of the Bourne films particularly Supremacy and Ultimatum which are contemporaneous with this and which Paul Greengrass directed the editor of the Bourne films Richard Pearson and the second unit director Dan Bradley 
are are also working on this film and i think they are if anything the true directors of it because mark forster who directed this film is a very similar director to michael apted who made the world is not enough he specialized in very prestigious oscary character dramas he directed halle berry to her oscar in monsters ball uh, and whilst michael apted is brought in to direct a very character driven drama this is a very action heavy film and i think forster loses control of it and that control is picked up by the second unit director who's creating those action scenes and the editor who fashioned this into a Jason Bourne film. So yeah, if we wanted a visual representation of Forster's directorship, it would be, here's one of the trucks that goes off the side of the mountain, isn't he? Uh, I was, uh, I picked you up, uh, Phil. I think I probably agree with you as well about the opening. I think it is really realistic and quite an entertaining start to the film. I'd quite like to have seen, because it is a continuation, isn't it? It's the first Bond film that is a, a direct sequel I would have liked to see a little bit more at the beginning and then the car chase. Uh, and also, I guess the, the camera doesn't stay in one position, does it, for more than half a second? So that kind of put me off a little bit, even though I knew that it was a really great action sequence. I was kind of distracted by the disorientating nature of the, uh, the camera work. I don't know. Did you agree with that? Did that just put you off? Well, pretty much the whole, the whole film really is, has kind of uh, ADHD. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that this seems to be symptomatic of the entire film. It just it just seems like they had to film it in super high speed. It just seems to be like everything is a hundred mile an hour. I know it's and there's so many characters as well. It just seems like they just wanted to add even more people. It's just so you kind of look at it, think right. So who's he? And then it's just they just moves on to somebody else. It's like well, hang on, I don't know who he is. What what does he do? So I mean, there's I mean characters like Elvis, the guy who's Dominic Green's, um, you know, kind of henchman. He is probably the worst henchman in history because he literally gets bugged by Bond and then tells somebody off for not being alert. It's just how useless are you? And it's just all the characters, there's no character development at all. And it's almost like somebody did a, you know, an idiot's guide to Bond films and then Mark Forster kind of went, all right, I'll just do that then. It is a scripting issue. I mean, mine, you've already talked about the writer's strike and it left them in the same situation, I guess, as Tomorrow Never Dies, where the previous Bond film was not just successful, but a huge pop culture event. And so they're having to rush this one out. And it means that they just don't have the time that they need to create a really good film or to just build upon what, to be fair, are very interesting ideas in the screenplay itself. I mean, Michael G. Wilson, the producer, has talked about taking inspiration from Chinatown, the great Roman Polanski film uh, from the 70s, about, you know, the fact that these villainous forces are controlling the water to control the world. Um, and so there are interesting ideas in this script. The fact that it's looking into the shadier world of environmental energy. We're looking into the link between politicians and seedy corporations. We're tapping into the history of US imperialism in South America but none of these things are built upon at all because the, the writers just didn't have the time to do anything with them to work them more coherently into the storyline the action itself doesn't have the spectacle or the imagination which as we talked about in Tomorrow Never Dies rescued that film the action scenes are so memorable and so brilliantly choreographed and tie into actually developing the characters and the stories in their own right this script just doesn't have any of this at all yeah, I thought the, um, yeah, I, I agree with you, Adam. I think the actual idea of this uh, kind of an international conspiracies and uh, governments and these characters being kind of smaller cogs in larger wheels, larger machinery is uh, actually a really good idea. But yeah, as you say, the actual characters that we get are lackluster and uh, we just don't care about, well, at least I can only speak for myself, but I just don't care about these characters. It seems like Dominic Green was deliberately a kind of ordinary villain who doesn't have any kind of special power, which might have worked in a different film. But in this one, there's nothing else. So we, we needed an exciting baddie, didn't we? And we certainly don't get that. Yeah, I'd agree. I, th I think he's, he's a very weedy character. You know, he's very... Way, way you see all the villains where there's sort of menace behind them and you kind of see, you know, there's a sense that they are they are kind of running the show almost. You kind of get the feeling that, um, you know, Dominic Green is just sort of a 
a very small figure in this. You know, also we get the background that it's a very big organization that is kind of that has you know hands uh, fingers in many pies and sort of is around the world. And and you get that great scene at the opera as well, obviously where Bond is behind the um, staging and obviously he's taking the photos of everyone as there. Again, it's it's just a moment where you think actually this could really be a great part of the film, and then it just tails off, particularly when you're trying to compare it to Casino Royale. Well, you know, Casino Royale, Le Chiffre, you immediately get informed of what Le Chiffre's role is within the organization. He is there to help terrorists to get into higher society. With this, Dominic Green owns an energy company that's, you know, trying to be, um, to promote green energy, literally. He's, he's just sort of a, a meaningless kind of corporate figure almost. Yeah, he's an extraordinarily boring villain is is Dominic Green. And that's kind of by design, sadly. Forster has talked about, oh, we didn't want a Bond villain who was this crazy megalomaniac with a distinguishing physical deformity. We wanted him to be very realistic and feel just like a kind of believable, almost the subtle psychopath that is a FTSE 100 CEO. The problem with that is it's all right not to give him distinguishing physical features, but you have to give him some distinguishable character features. And the thing is, this isn't a new thing that Forster is doing. We have had psychopathic, non-megalomaniac villains before, but the difference is they really bring out the psychotic nature of those villains. The comparison for me here is Franz Sanchez in Licence to Kill. He's not a traditional Bond villain at all. He is just a drug dealer who has created this big operation because obviously he's bought political influence, similarly to this film, actually, in South America. He has control of this banana republic. But that character is so vicious and is so brutal and is so nasty. And this character needed to be the same thing. You need to fear him. You need to be afraid of him and what he can do and the power he has. And Matthew Amalric just doesn't convey that. Yeah, I think he said that he wanted his performance to be to have the smile of Tony Blair and the craziness of Nicholas Sarkozy. Uh, so I, I guess he does achieve his aim if that was what he was going for. And he, he, just, he is a bit crazy, especially at the end when we get those uh, that fighting at the end of the, in the hotel. As a whole, I think you're right, Adam, to say that um, he's a random slate. There's a random baddie in this film, isn't there, called Mr. Slate, who Bond takes out. Maybe that could have been the villain. Hello, I'm Slate. Random slate. I mean, that would have improved the film immeasurably, to be honest, because it can't be any worse than it is already. I mean, the fact we've got a character called Strawberry Fields kind of says it all, really. But don't we only know she's called Strawberry Fields because it's in the credits? I don't think she in the film says, my first name is Strawberry. They, they keep it blank and let you almost infer it. So they have a pun character and they don't even give you the pun in the film which is really bizarre. Like, why would you even call that and do that joke if you're not going to then make the joke in the film? It's very strange. I mean, the only humour we get in this is looking at everyone's very strange hairstyles. You've mentioned Elvis and that crazy fringe. I want to also bring up Greg Bean, the sort of Felix Leiter's CIA boss. Why has he just walked in from, like, the 1970s? Because this guy just doesn't look at all like he should be a naughty CIA agent. He looks like the one Matt Damon played in that informant film. Again, it's a very odd segue into just more random characters, which don't really go anywhere either. You know, he just sort of go. It didn't. You know, nothing happens to that character, and it's just. And again, Adam, I agree with you. I think this is a very joyless film. You know, even in the most sort of serious Bond films, there are sort of slight moments of light relief where there's, you know, there are sort of minor touches of comedy. They almost looked at it as thought. We need to make this so gritty and try and make it as realistic as we could. And then it, it kind of loses any character that you get from a regular Bond film. It just it just feels very clinical. Thinking about Green again, who they really should have got to play it was bring back Christopher Walken. Because he basically did this character to perfection with Max Zorin thinking about the psycho CEO. He might have enlivened some of the dialogue in this. It's great you two are together. You're damaged goods, both of you. I got a lot of water. I've hidden Bolivia's water up my ass. Can you imagine him and the general? Can you imagine them and General Mendoza? They'd be a great double act, wouldn't they, if it was just a pair of them just working together? And bring back Benicio Del Toro for General Mendoza. Hey, come on, call Bolivia, How about M as a character? I believe uh, Forster wanted M to have a much more prominent role in the film uh, because he thought she was underutilized in previous films. Uh, but I'd probably disagree with that. I think she's been overused in some of the uh, the other storylines, especially in 
die another day where she was just randomly in Korea in the path of the Icarus satellite laser. So um, what do we think of M? It's always good to have a bit more Dame Judy, I feel, in the uh, in the storyline. But uh, she was kind of superfluous, I feel, in some of the areas, just randomly popping up. Yeah, I think for me, um, Dame Judy Dench kind of makes the best of a bad job, really, with this, because it's a case that, you know, if Mark Forster wanted to make more use of her in this film, it was it's kind of strange that he just used the kind of to, to randomly appear. It's obviously she appears in Bolivia for a very brief amount of time. And obviously she's there with the, um, the foreign secretary and, and also she's liaising with Tanner as well. So it seems a bit strange that he wants to involve her more. And yet she seems like she's very much still in the background in this film. In this one, it basically seems like she's just very annoyed with Bond for pretty much the entire film. The problem really with them in this film is that her motivation uh, is completely inconsistent and, and it keeps undermining this central question which we're supposed to have throughout the film and don't of whether Bond is actually okay and whether he's up to doing this mission or whether he has just gone rogue and he is completely consumed by rage and grief and revenge which I think Daniel Craig's performance is sort of trying to go for and that therefore he's a bit of a loose cannon and that he is genuinely killing all of these people to try and satiate his bloodlust and his anger rather than he's doing it for the good of the mission but he sort of isn't that because pretty much everyone he kills is trying to kill him and then at the end uh, M sort of says, um, you know, you, I was never in doubt about you. I always trusted you. Really? I thought the whole point of you in this film, M, was that we don't know if you trust him or not. And now you're saying you always did. So it just feels like that whole relationship needed to be much more on edge and it needed to be much more ambiguous that Bond is properly off the rails. And Daniel Craig himself isn't given the space in the film to properly show that. And the events of the action sequences don't allow him to do that either because we always feel like, well, he's got to kill these people. Otherwise, they're going to stab him or shoot him or something like he's, he's not just gone rogue he's defending himself yeah it's particularly ambivalent when they discover strawberry fields dead body with the covered in the oil and then she says there's a it's not a shoot to kill order is it it's something like a shoot or capture order and bond walks past her like isn't she the one who gave the order why and now she's just letting him go the one good M scene actually in this, which I would like to point out, is her scene with Tim Piggott Smith as the foreign secretary, because that's the one scene which sort of starts articulating that sort of shadowy political dynamic that the film is going for. And also it's the time where we see our favourite uh, paradox, the Frederick Gray paradox in action. The idea that the government never really wants MI6 and Bond to be going after all of these crazed supervillains who are clearly wrongdoers. Whereas here, of course, because of the money involved and the power involved we're sort of given the reasons why they don't it's not just because oh dominic's in my club i, I go to the cricket with him at lords you can't go after him he owns one of our football clubs forest green rovers mr green's interests in ours now align minister this man is a major player in one of the most dangerous and powerful organizations we've never even heard of foreign policy cannot be conducted on the basis of hunches and innuendo then give us time to gather enough evidence so you can make informed decisions. Fine. Say you're right. Say Green is a villain. If we refused to do business with villains, we'd have almost no one to trade with. The world's running out of oil, Em. The Russians aren't playing ball. The Americans and Chinese are dividing up what's left. Right or wrong doesn't come into it. One of the characters we've probably not mentioned a huge amount just yet is Camille, who's played by um, the actor Olga Kurilenka. What do you guys think of the performance? Obviously, we've mentioned kind of the the lack of character development with certain characters, but um, do we think that she's perhaps hard done by in in terms of what she's able to do in the film? Yeah, I think that uh, I think she probably deserves a better film to be in. I think uh, Olga Kurilenko does a a good job, a solid acting job. I feel with her character. Uh, but as we mentioned, some of the mistakes of the film hinder her character development. I would have liked to see perhaps a flashback scene of her in childhood so that we get a real sense of the, the evilness of General Medrano. And I think the film does attempt to have some emotional side as well. We do get them talking with each other in that cave, don't we? Um, but it kind of misses the mark, I feel. We, by that stage, I'm not sure I'm invested in her character so much. Um, but but I want to be. I feel like she gives a good performance. It's just just not much to work with in terms of the storyline. 
and because the character isn't developed well, we've fallen back on two classic Bond woman tropes. Uh, one, she is a fellow secret agent working for the Bolivian government. And two, she is a sort of angel of revenge. On both of those, as an avenging angel, she's just not given the dimensionality and the motivation of, say, a Melina Havelock, whose cause for revenge we see in the film itself. We watch as her parents are gunned down before her eyes. And as a fellow agent, She's awful. She's absolutely rubbish. You, you compare it to, you know, what we've been saying about Pam Bouvier, about Anya Amasova, about Wei Lin. They all bring something different to why they are effective as agents. Literally, the only power that Camille is given as an agent is seduction. That's how she infiltrates Green and his enterprise. She, she seduces him and, and sets up a relationship with him, a sexual relationship. And that's sort of just really reductive and a real missed opportunity. And I think it just drags the whole character down to the base level of a bomb woman, i.e. as just a sort of object of sexual desire and fantasy. And there's also, of course, this, this idea that we're sort of trying to set her up as a kind of female counterpart to Bond, as a fellow agent who is broken and shattered, and that they're both seeking the closure of revenge in order to sort of get themselves back on the right track and back in the real world. But that's only explored in one scene, the scene where they're in the cave and discover the water. They're just not together through enough of the film to explore that, to kind of have that dynamic of they're both trying to exorcise each other's demons. Yeah, I guess the, the longest scene we see with them together is probably the pointless one of them walking out of the desert where Mark Forster decides to just have a, a pretentious shot of them walking away and getting on the bus. So it just completely wasted the uh, the short running time of the film with uh, with pointless shots rather than developing the characters. Yeah, and compare that walking out of the desert to walking out of the desert with a massive in The Spy Who Loved Me, where they've been sort of facing off against each other by knowing each other's histories in the bar. They've had the sort of spikier banter in, in the car itself when they're trying to drive away from Jaws. And we've established the fact that she is smarter than Bond, that she is also resourceful, that she can also do tricks behind the wheel, which he underestimates. So we get that dynamic. We get that relationship at that point. And, and at this point, when they walk out of the desert, we haven't got that at all. Yeah, there isn't even any Lawrence of Arabia music, is there? At least put that in the film, give us some entertainment. But picking up on that idea that she is purely a figure of seduction, it's a similar problem that besets the other female lead in this, Strawberry Fields, who, again, a very weak character. And the fact that she sleeps with Bond pretty much straight away, again, completely compromises her and compromises that sense of authority and independence that she's supposed to have. She, she comes across as very matter-of-fact and business-like in terms of trying to get him back to London and, and away from all of this. And yet all it needs is, is an upgrade to a swanky hotel and she's just immediately in bed with him. And so we're then meant to feel something when she turns up covered in oil on the bed, but that death is completely meaningless because we barely know anything about her. Yeah, th there's no there's no kind of emotion to it, is there? It's, it leaves you feeling a bit flat, really. When And it, it's kind of the same with with a lot of the, you know, the scenes in this film where it's meant to be, you know, quite emotive. One of the, the scenes that always gets that seems quite frustrating is obviously the final sequence after Bond has left Dominic Green in the desert and obviously he's gone to Russia to to try and find Vespa Lynn's, um, you know, love interest from the first, from Casino Royale. Um, and, you know, that should be a really emotionally charged sequence where, you know, Bond is finally coming face to face with the person that effectively betrayed Vespa and caused Vespa to betray him. You know, it should be a scene where, as an audience, you are really invested in that. And it Again, it just seems like it just sort of peters out. Yeah, I guess it should be emotional, but the fact that the storyline has completely ignored that character up until the end, like we spent the whole film after Dominic Green, haven't we? Another boring character. Now suddenly we're back to Vesper's old boyfriend, so it doesn't quite make sense, does it? And I think with other villains in the film as well, like the, uh, I felt they missed an opportunity with the, uh, the Tosca uh, opera, uh, Bond kind of getting them to reveal themselves. Uh, I'm always curious about how I think there's a there's actor Paul Ritter, quite a popular screen and stage actor, who is in the film for about two seconds. I'm always curious about what kind of fee that he commanded for this film. I would have loved to have seen him in in one scene, but we don't. We just see him walking out of the the theatre. I think that opera scene and also the horse racing scene, they're both um, examples of the more pretentious rather than just incompetent aspect of uh, Mark Forster's direction and, and that sort of intercutting of the action sequence with something else that's going on. 
but it's completely empty. Like th those sequences the action is intercut with are not reinforcing the action in any way. You compare it to the intercutting with Opera in The Untouchables when Sean Connery is being executed. And then you slowly zoom into Robert De Niro as um, Al Capone. And you don't know whether he's crying at the emotion of the opera or he's laughing because he's just been told that one of his main adversaries has been killed. That's how you do it. You make the things you're intercutting support each other, not just random nonsense like it is here. That's, yeah, that's a good point. But also you compare it to the living daylights where obviously you get the scenes where they're in Vienna and obviously Bond goes to the opera in that. There is a real purpose to that because Cara is obviously, you know, world-class, uh, I believe, cellist. And so she is the, the lover of um, Yogi Koskov. So there is real value in Bond being in that sort of environment and getting in and obviously having an interest in in the opera and, and being involved in that because it it progresses the plot incidentally i've also wondered what would happen to one of the assistants if they gave the wrong bag to the wrong person you know what if we were at the opera that night and we were listening to their random discussions you know we could we could go off and sell it to the sun or anything like that you know it's it's ridiculous that that's their idea for a top secret meeting is to go to an opera I think also there's a missed opportunity with the rest of presumably quite a stuffy upper class audience telling all of the quantum people to shush because they're talking over this opera that they're trying to listen to. In like an opera, all right, I get it that they're singing quite loudly from the stage and there might be an orchestra, but it's not going to be so loud that people aren't going to hear you all whispering and start going, will you be quiet, please, and trying to listen to Tosca? Can I actually, because you mentioned it before, Phil, pick you up on, on that very final sequence? And I completely agree. It, it's lost because we've spent the whole film going after Dominic Green as opposed to this guy. But obviously the atmosphere and the shooting of that scene is incredibly cold. And because it's sort of black and white without being black and white, in this case, just snow and shadow, uh, it calls back to the monochrome sequence at the very beginning of Casino Royale. And in a sense, that's sort of what's wrong with this film as well, in terms that the script is completely misunderstanding the ending of Casino Royale and the character of Bond and the effect that Vesper Lind has on him. Think about that final line of the novel, which is also in the film Casino Royale, the job's done, the bitch is dead. Bond being betrayed and then losing this person who he was in love with it doesn't wreck him as an agent in Casino Royale. It sets him up as the agent he was born to be. It creates James Bond. It puts that final misogynistic, having that disposable attitude towards women in place. But here we backtrack, we go back to square one and the sense that actually he is still becoming James Bond. And so it means that his whole character arc has regressed. He's not James Bond anymore. He's the, the sort of rough around the edges wannabe secret agent that he starts out as being and it puts his whole relationship with M on repeat as well as we've discussed. Rennie Mathis is not given enough to do. It, it feels like because he's brought back as a close friend and confidant it feels like if they'd been given more time to deepen that relationship we could have delved into how bond's feeling how it's affecting him but because mathis is given about 10 minutes we a don't feel any impact when he's killed and b he's just not as a character given enough time to give to the story and to bond what he needs to give to him to become almost a father figure helping him out of this psychological funk that he's in it's quite good to have mathis back uh, but yeah, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think he's just not in it for long enough, is he? He's he's back and then suddenly, oh no, he's dead. Um, I feel like that scene should be more impactful, shouldn't it? It should be quite a tender scene of Mathis dying in Bond's arms. So when I was watching it, I thought, yeah, I want this to be a really tender moment. But then it just left you cold, didn't it? Because there hadn't been any development. Yeah, they're relying completely on the collateral from uh, Casino Royale. But as you say, he spends a lot of that film explaining the rules of poker. So we like him as a character, but we don't feel any real sense of a deeper relationship between him and Bond. On Bond's allies, I think we finally found someone who looks more bored in a Bond film than Sean Connery in You Only Live Twice. And that is Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter in this film. He sits around moping like a child on the naughty step throughout pretty much every scene he has in this. I think you mentioned the hangdog expression, didn't you, Adam, in the previous one? Well, this is this is even worse, isn't it? Maybe he's a, a victim of editing. Do you think there were some extra scenes? Because there is a really pointless scene where we see him sitting in the middle of the Greens party, his fundraiser, 
for no reason. Bond just kind of walks past him, and we don't even know if Bond knows that Light is there. Quite possibly, and that would explain uh, your earlier point about Paul Ritter being in it for like two seconds, even though he's a great character actor. Uh, Mark Forster, again, has very pretentiously talked about, oh, the Bond films are usually a bit baggy, so I wanted this one to feel like it was going like a bullet. And it is the shortest of the Bond films. I mean, all the other Craig films are about 45 minutes longer than it. I have to confess, this one feels 45 minutes longer than they are than I'm, when I'm watching it. So yeah, maybe there was a lot of, of cutting of, of sort of extraneous scenes. And of course, Lighter is just completely useless again in this isn't it? i mean he tips bond off about the hotel but that's pretty much all the extent of what he does he just sits around looking at his weird 70s boss i think felix Leiter's just there for the holidays and evil you know he gets to go to montenegro in casino royale and have a you know a million well 10 million dollar poker game he gets to go to you know all the lo exotic locations in this film where you know he's, he's there in his hawaiian shirt doing sod all it's a shame that uh, jeffrey wright i really like him as an actor so it's a shame he doesn't actually get more to do isn't it I think we mentioned in our previous episodes I think Nick said it would be a funny idea to have all of the lighter actors at the stag party so I guess Jeffrey Wright's lighter would just be sitting in the middle looking annoyed yeah I don't think you want Jeffrey Wright's lighter at the stag do I'm not I thinking he's going to bring everyone down at this rate should we move on to not the real damp squid finale of the film, but the other damp squid finale of the film, which is the fight in the hotel? Because I feel for me, I don't know about you guys, this is the most underwhelming climactic sequence, I think, of any Bond film that I can think of. It is a really weak ending to the film. You know, again, it comes back to Dominic Green not being that great a character. You know, he, he doesn't really add anything to that final fight sequence. He, again, it just feels like it, there's no menace to it. It just feels like... Uh, I honestly think Dominic Green does more running in this film than he does actual acting. What can you say? It's just so weak, the fact that they could have done so much. You know, we, we've talked about these big set-piece endings. You know, you look back at Tomorrow Never Dies, you look back at The Spy Who Loved Me, great set-pieces where the villain is seemingly in control and Bond has no real way, you think, to be able to overcome him. And then he obviously has something up his sleeve, whether it's a gadget, whether it's, you know, a plot point, that he can overcome the villain that would have been a much better way to set it up than this weird ending where it's just like, oh, by the way, there's this hotel in the middle of the desert. You might want to look at it. It's like, well, right, okay. Yeah, I think the, the hotel setting is a bit weird and pointless, as I've said for many of the areas of this film. I don't know. I think on, on paper, I think the, the fight sequence should be quite good uh, because you've got the, the two pairs, Bond taking his revenge on Green, Camille taking her revenge on Madrano. So I feel like on paper, it should be a good revenge ending. But uh, of course, as we've mentioned many times, the, uh, the, the characters are not fleshed out enough for us to really care about either of these revenge plots. Yeah, and because of that, it becomes a bit die another day, doesn't it? Where you have two simultaneous fights going on one-on-ones and you're not particularly invested in either. And of course, the real problem is we get no payoff either in an interesting villain death or in the romantic conquest with the Bond woman. They made this very crucial and I guess very different choice not to have Bond and the lead Bond woman end up in a romantic tryst. Which would work and which would be very intelligent as a resolution to these two broken, shattered, fragile souls having taken mutual revenge and having got each other out of the dark places that they were in. Had you developed that relationship throughout the rest of the film, the fact that you haven't means there's just no consequence or, or, or emotional payoff to the fact that they're not having a sexual payoff at that point. So you've sort of not done either of the things that you could have successfully done to round out that relationship. Swim. Okay, so uh, now let's move on to the cars and gadgets section. So, Phil, over to you. What do we have for Quantum of Solace? Yes, that's very much, Martin. So we've mentioned in previous um, episodes of uh, Roger Moore's Cubby Hole the influence of the Ford Motor Company on the more modern Bond films. Um, this time it's very much more um, prevalent in this film. It, it almost feels like an extended car advert for Ford at, at times, um, principally because of the amount of manufacturers that they owned at this point in history. So in the opening sequences, we've already mentioned the um, the iconic kind of car chase um, where Bond returns in his Aston Martin DBS with um, Mr. White in the boot. 
This time it's a dark grey version of the, um, the DBS, whereas we saw kind of a light silver version in Casino Royale. Um, obviously, during the filming for this um, sequence, there was a lot of controversy because it was blighted by two quite serious um, accidents within the space of four days. So one wasn't actually directly involved with filming. It was just an Aston Martin employee who um, crashed the DBS um, and was lucky to survive because the roof effectively caved in on him as it went down the, uh, the ravine. The other was an extremely serious crash, which involved a uh, Greek stuntman, Aris Komnenos, um, where he lost control of the car during the filming for the, um, the tight sequence through the tunnel um, on an extremely wet section of road and crashed heavily into Lake Garda um, and actually had to be airlifted to hospital. So there was, there was a lot of controversy about that sequence and the fact they actually managed to get it delivered at all is, is quite a miracle. Um, but moving on to some of the other cars, obviously we've mentioned the Aston Martin um, in Casino Royale. This was really um, one of the more unusual circumstances because Ford decided they wanted to give Camille uh, their brand new Mark II car, which was possibly the dullest uh, choice of car for any Bond film. You know, we've mentioned before things like the two, Citroen 2CV from Fear Eyes Only and the Ford Mondeo from Casino Royale. This one was really was just a marketing exercise. It was one of three cars built by Ford of Europe, um, and it was actually a prototype model that used hydrogen fuel cells. So this was kind of Ford saying, this isn't even a production model yet. We're just trying to do a, a kind of design and engineering showcase to show you what might be of our cars in the future. In terms of gadgets themselves, one thing that we didn't really mention in the, um, in the earlier part of the episode was the fact there's a very interesting focus on kind of more sci-fi um, development of the computer systems, particularly the MI6 use. M seems to have a very, very advanced uh, computer system in her office, which basically can tap into um, the CIA um, mainframe within about three seconds flat and also comes up with a, a huge uh, display screen in her, in her offices in MI6. I'm not sure what kind of technology MI6 has at their disposal, but Presumably by the year 2033, they'll be able to probably time travel at this rate. So that's really a very quick summary of the uh, the kind of the cars and gadgets that are in Quantum Solace. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. Yeah, we didn't even get onto the uh, the redesign of MI6, did we? Bit of a strange redesign. It reminds me of the one in Johnny English, where the Secret Service is sponsored by Toshiba. Everything's very modern and slick. Um, but yeah, ridiculous interactive wall as well, isn't there? I guess picking up on that Johnny English link, it would have been quite good to see in the background just Rowan Atkinson as Nigel Smallforsett from Never Say Never Again. And of course, John Cleese as R just maybe bantering and riffing off each other or doing some kind of slapstick uh, to amuse as well. The non-plot is being explained. Yeah, I'd have definitely taken that over what we actually get. Okay, so uh, over now to buy the book. So, Adam, what do we have? What links are there with the novel? Why don't you acquaint yourself with the manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you. So this is going to be the last ever uh, installment of Buy the Book because Quantum of Solace is the final uh, unadapted short story from the For Your Eyes Only collection written by Ian Fleming. It takes place pretty much all in flashback from the setting of an after party at the government house in Nassau after Bond's completed a mission in the Bahamas, in which he's kind of talking to the governor of, um, of the Bahamas and saying that uh, Bond is saying he imagines it'd be nice to marry an air hostess because they'd be similarly well-travelled in their job as he is. At which point, the governor narrates to Bond pretty much the entirety of a relationship between an air hostess he knew called Rhoda Llewellyn and a civil servant called Philip Masters. Now, after a certain amount of time, Rhoda had an affair, apparently, with the son of a rich Bermudan family where they were living. And Masters had a nervous breakdown and was reassigned to Washington. And upon his return to Bermuda, he divided their house into two and only had them appear as a couple, uh, as a public facade. And eventually he returned to the UK alone, leaving Rhoda stranded and in debt and so exacts a sort of cruel revenge upon her and this in the books in the short stories parlance is the quantum of solace that masters has got to it's the point in a relationship where the compassion drops to zero and there's no humanity and consideration for one another left 
and that this is the point at which a relationship is definitively over. And so although the film never articulates it, the suggestion is that Bond is trying to get to this point, to the quantum of solace throughout the course of the film in order to have no remaining humanity and compassion left for Vespa Lind. Um, in the short story, it's told that Masters never emotionally recovered and that Rhoda actually went on to marry a rich Canadian, who it turns out were, of course, the dull couple that Bond had met earlier that night at the governor's party. The other unadapted short story, actually, is uh, 007 in New York, and this is a very short story that Fleming wrote and which appears in Octopussy and the Living Daylights. And this is sort of weirdly half adapted for the very end scene of Quantum of Solace, the film, in which Bond warns a female intelligence employee that her boyfriend is an enemy agent. In the short story 007 in New York, uh, Bond never actually completes this mission. The whole short story is about him just enjoying being in New York and doing things such as giving us his uh, personal recipe for scrambled eggs before there's a sort of comedy ending in that his supposed liaison with this female intelligence operative never happens because they plan it for the wrong day. Interestingly, the name of this woman is Solange, which of course we've used for the character played by Catalina Marino in the Nassau sequences of the previous film, Casino Royale. So there it is, the final two unadapted Fleming Bond stories have now been adapted. They've not been adapted particularly faithfully or particularly well, and the film never really explains why it's called Quantum of Solace. Well, that's why it's called Quantum of Solace, because that's what Bond is trying to get to in his relationship with Vesper. It'd have been good to know that watching the film, wouldn't it? Certainly would. It seems the the audience has a lack of human emotion by the end of the film, so they, they do achieve it in some some level. I do like the sound of uh, 007 in New York, though, just making some scrambled eggs. Maybe that's Bond 26, James May as 007. <laughs> I was about to say, it just sounds like Frasier, that, does the opening series of that, was it Toss Salad and Scrambled Eggs, where he's just a New York... Is that just what he is, a New York radio host that just happens to be a cook as well? Apparently, Ian Fleming wasn't much of a connoisseur of food in real life, despite writing these incredible descriptions of meals. In the novels, Terence Young, who directed Doctor No from Russia with Love and Thunderball, habitually had nice swanky lunches with everyone he knew if you listen to him he's quite debonair but he had lunches once a week with Ian Fleming at one point and Fleming always just ordered scrambled eggs and bacon and Young was just ordering these incredible gourmet meals and saying look I should pay for more of these than you and Fleming was apparently just saying oh no I'm loaded thanks to the job you've done with uh, the films of my books I can pay my way thank you. Okay so we'll move on now to the next segment of Now I Know You. secret agent that english secret agent from england so this is my segment where we take a look at some of the callbacks that are made to previous bond films uh, so there's quite a few in this one we get the uh, personally my favorite is the uh, the sandor style death of the uh, the special branch guy who is uh, actually he is the the stuntman who he's not david Cronnelly, stuntman dave but he He's another one of the Ice Palace guards from Die Another Day. We also get, uh, obviously, the the main in terms of the main plot of the story, this is the the second James Bond movie in which uh, the main character, Bond, is seeking revenge. Of course, linking back to License to Kill was the other one. We could loosely, perhaps, say Diamonds Are Forever as well, where he takes revenge for uh, Tracy, although not very convincingly at the beginning of, uh, of that film. Uh, also, it's the, the third movie in which he's uh, suspended or revoked his his license to kill of course that happened in license to kill and also in die another day we get the link of uh, strawberry fields dying at the uh, the hands of uh, i think it was dubbed oil finger in the press when they were talking about this uh, this film uh, so link back to of course goldfinger and the uh, the gold paint we also get the uh, the omission of the the main phrase of course Bond's introduction, Bond, James Bond. Uh, the last time that was omitted was uh, in From Russia With Love, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. Also, we've spoken a little bit about Felix Leiter. Uh, so he is, uh, Jeffrey Wright is only the second actor to reprise the role. Of course, David Hedison was our previous favorite in Live and Let Die and License to Kill. We also get uh, a very small callback in the, the card that uh, Phil got annoyed about when uh, he's handing it to Elvis, everyone's favorite henchman, uh, the card from Universal Exports. And if you look very closely, his name is R. Sterling, the same pseudonym that uh, was given in The Spy Who Loved Me when he introduces himself to Stromberg. And also we could say that uh, Camille, uh, the character, she's the, the second Bond girl who is uh, avenging her murdered family. Of course, Adam's already mentioned For Your Eyes Only, 
Melina Havelock, uh, and that character is a much better way of, uh, of dealing with uh, a revenge plot, I feel. And uh, finally, we could say uh, Mathieu Amaric is the, the fourth French actor to play a leading Bond villain. Of course, we've had Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax, Louis Jourdain as Kamal Khan, and we've had Sophie Marceau as Electric King. So uh, he follows in a long line there of actors, French villains in the Bond films. So uh, that was about it for my links there. That's uh, all I could find. I don't know if uh, you guys have anything else, whether you could be bothered to <laughs> identify anything in this film. No, I particularly like the Sandor uh, off the roof moment as well. I guess the other thing is is that it's another example of Bond constantly being a fiend for seeking hotel upgrades. Pretty much every hotel he goes in, he's, he's dissatisfied with the layout of the room or he wants a better room or he just wants a better hotel itself. Obviously, in this one with Strawberry Fields, he takes one look at her idea and decides, no, I'm, I'm going for the lottery winner's hotel myself. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the only comparison I was going to say, obviously, in Goldfinger and Thunderball, that's the first reoccurrence of the same car being used back to back with the DB5. So we see that again in this film with the DBS. Um, so just a brief note of that. One thing I forgot to say earlier, actually, is, is another very pretentious thing Mark Forster said about the action in this is that he wanted them fitting with the energy storyline. You reminded me of this with the oil and the cars, was that he wanted the four main action sequences in the film to represent the four elements of air, earth, fire and water. So obviously fire, the hotel blowing up, air, the plane fight, uh, earth, presumably the car chase at the start and water, the boat chase. Did you get that from it? No, I definitely did not get that. That sounds like something he's made up after he's done the film, like retroactively saying, oh, we've better make this mean something. And all I can think of now is the band Earth, Wind and Fire. That's all I can think of after he said that. OK, so we'll move along now to the questions branch segment of the show. So what do we have this week, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. Well, at time of recording, there's only really one place that we can start. Of course, a lot of the Bond community were somewhat disappointed to hear that um, No Time to Die has now been delayed again until April 2021. I know that a lot of, well, certainly I was looking forward to seeing it in the cinema in November. Um, personally, for me, I feel very disappointed that it's been um, moved again. Uh, guys, what do you think? Are, are you kind of frustrated that we're going to have to wait even longer to see the film do you think this is really negative for the franchise it's incredibly disappointing and very frustrating uh not from the point of view of as bond fans obviously we're very excited to see a new bond film but from the point of view of cinemas are being deprived of a product now and in the time of everything that's going on with the pandemic it is really really starting to hurt them uh, the major film studios for a long time have been wedded to making these big tentpole blockbusters which are made for hundreds of millions and which need to make back hundreds of millions in order to be hugely profitable. And in this current situation, this strategy has now, it's not only meant that they aren't producing a diversity of really good and interesting films throughout the year, it now means that cinema chains are at risk. As a direct result, um, just this morning of the Bond film being delayed, Cineworld has announced that it is temporarily closing all of its screens in the UK, which is putting jobs and livelihoods at risk. And this is because cinemas are open, they're not getting any financial support, but studios are not releasing any product to get people to go and see them. You know, the Marvel films are being delayed, Disney's other films are being delayed, or, you know, Mulan went straight to Disney+. Plus. All the other big tentpole films are being delayed and they are not going into cinemas, which means that with the exception of Christopher Nolan and Warner Brothers, who put Tenet into cinemas, who are risking their profit margins to give cinemas product, to give them something to sell to the public and to get the public to brave what's going on and go out and support cinemas, other film studios are not doing the same thing. And a new Bond film would have been huge, I think, for cinemas in the UK. I think it would have been a huge lifeline over what's going to be very difficult winter months for everyone. We are being expected at the moment to go out and support businesses, to eat out, to help out, to try and keep the economy going. But people who are not releasing products into cinemas in this way are not willing to risk their profit margins and their shareholders' accounts in the same way. And I don't think that's right. I think if cinemas are going to be open and if they're not going to be given financial support whilst they're being closed by the government, 
People need to bite the bullet. People need to keep the economy going. And that means studios need to release films into the cinemas as safely as possible to give them products so that they can survive. Either do one or the other. Don't do this. Don't do what you're doing at the moment because it's going to really cost people their jobs and it might ultimately cost us the cinema itself. Yeah, I don't think I can improve on that, Adam. So you can, <laughs> Phil, you can go for the next question. No, that well, no. I think I think we all agree with your sentiments, Adam. I think that was a very passionate summary of of why. Well, well, certainly I'm very angry that they keep promising and then not delivering. I think is probably the biggest issue as well. The fact that they put in their own interests ahead of everyone else. So, well, let's move on to the next one. So, a slightly. Uh, more light-hearted question this one so we've been talking about quantum of solace in this episode um, apparently they did actually use real life intelligence operatives to um, consult on the production of the film do you guys think that worked do you think that was a good idea or do you think that completely missed the mark with um, the final product that we received from quantum of solace well, yeah i guess it's always a good idea to have some more realism uh, but it's just uh, the film was so bad it's hard to tell where they're expert advice came in and where the cgi starts uh, so yeah a great idea but uh, and i think we mentioned in the previous episode daniel craig uh, took advice from some intelligence officers from britain and israel uh, so i think it's it's always good to have that uh, gritty realism in there but uh, I'm, i can't i couldn't specify where exactly it was in in quantum of solace i'm not sure yeah, it's, it is strange, isn't it? Like I say, I, I do, as a general rule, like the Bond films that are a bit more realistic. But, you, you know, I guess the problem with this one is it strays so far into realism and so far away from what makes Bond Bond that it sort of loses the style and the tone that you really want from those films, doesn't it? I wonder, what was the advice? Like, yeah, we always go to the opera, they give us a little goodie bag and there's our little earpiece. I'll bet it was, of course, we've got a massive screen on the walls of MI6 that can just patch into the CIA anytime. Of course, that's real. Honest. It just, yeah, it just, it just reminds me, there are elements that remind me of kind of the Moonraker infamous, uh, this used NASA experts to show how space travel and, uh, you know, what would a, a real life space scene look like? And then you end up with the finale of Moonraker and you think, really? So just to move on to the final question uh, for this week's Q branch, it's a bit more of a fun one this time. Which Bond gets the best introduction in the films? Now, I'll, I'll let you know mine first. So I, I personally think they're all great. But for me personally, I think that Sean Connery's is probably the most iconic. But for me, Timothy Dalton's introduction on the, um, the mountainside in Gibraltar is probably the best of the lot. Yeah, I think those are good choices, Phil. I personally would go with Brosnan. And I think his introduction in GoldenEye is excellent. I probably would have gone Lazenby if uh, if they didn't have the fourth wall break where he's talking to the camera. I think without that, I might have gone Lazenby. But uh, for me, it's Brosnan. Excellent introduction. You're all, you're sold immediately that this is Bond. Yeah, obviously the Connery one is, is always, I think, going to be the greatest. Uh, I would actually go for the Lazenby as a close second. I like the fact that you don't see him for much. I think the whole direction of that scene, the, the, the camera work, the zoom into the cigarette, you know, the fact that he's kept in shadow, the way the music is playing, and it's a different kind of music, a little bit more electronic keyboards are brought in by John Barry. The fact that it segues into this really rapid fire fist fight on the sands, you know, cut in that very fast, sped up, choppy way that Peter Hunt was so good at doing. And of course, the fact that you you have that sort of, you know, slightly, I guess, kind of tongue in cheek, you know, poking of fun at, at Lazenby's past as a beefcake, the fact that he's in that sort of wet white shirt that's a bit see-through carrying this lady uh, out of the seas. It's quite milk tray man, but then it segues into James Bond. And I think it's quite a nice, funny way to sort of put him into the role as well. Okay, thanks guys. So that was our key branch for this week. So um, as ever for all our cubbies and our uh, podcast fans, if you um, do want to send in your questions, suggestions or theories, please do get in touch and we will feature them in a future episode of the key branch. So that brings us to the final segment, which is the quiz. So this week, it's Adam. What do you have in store for us this time, Adam? No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thanks very much. So a bit more traditional this week. It's going to be four questions each, and this is called Quantum of Quizziness. 
Uh, this is based on the fact that James Bond racks up a huge amount of air miles in this film. So what I'm going to do is go between you. I'm going to give you a travel itinerary that Bond goes on in a film. And all you have to do is tell me which film he visits these locations in this order. So uh, who should we start with? Phil, let's start with you, just because my eyeline is on you at the moment. So first one, they're going to start out pretty simple. Which film is this? Bond travels to California, Venice, Rio de Janeiro, and space. Well, surely that's Moonraker. Is the correct answer, yeah. Space, a bit of a giveaway, I guess. Martin, your first question. Cairo, Amsterdam, Las Vegas, Valhalla. It's my favourite Bond, my, my favourite bad Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever. Is correct, that is Diamonds Are Forever, one all, back to Phil. Prague, Nassau, Montenegro, Venice. That's Casino Royale, surely. It is Casino Royale. Very well done. Two points to you, Martin. North Korea, Hong Kong, Cuba, Iceland. That's my least favourite bad Bond film, Die Another Day. It is Die Another Day. So I was about to say, Martin, if you hadn't have got that one, my, my estimations in you would have dropped alarmingly. Which is the bigger giveaway in those questions? North Korea in that one or space in Moonraker? I think it's about even, to be honest. Okay, so back to Phil, your next question. Gibraltar, Vienna, Tangier, Afghanistan. Uh, well, that's the living daylight. Well done. You go to three points, Martin. Russia, Oxford, Hamburg, Saigon. That's Tomorrow Never Dies. Correct. Full house from both of you. Last question each before we go to a tie. Phil, five this time for these two questions. Mexico City, Rome, Austria, Tangier, London. I'm trying to think. Um, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to say the spy who loved me, but I know it's wrong. I'm afraid that is incorrect. It's Spectre. Uh, so, Martin, this one for the win. Monte Carlo, London, Bern, Lauterbrunnen, Portugal. I think, is it on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Is the correct answer. It is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, Martin, you win today's quiz. You've got one over on Phil. You get to choose today's outro music. Uh, this one was a bit of a, a clownish entry in the Bond franchise. So I'd like to have M herself, Judy Dench, singing Send In The Clowns. We'll hold out for some uh, whiz in there as well. I'm not sure if there are any. On a whim, I thought it would be a good choice. So uh, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for joining us for our review of Quantum of Solace. We'll be back next week with Skyfall. In the meantime, take a look at our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do head on over there, give us some likes and follows. They're always uh, appreciated. But uh, that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Don't you love fast? My fault, I fear. I thought that you'd want what I want. Sorry. Where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Don't bother. They're here. But yeah, Sean Connery doing the start of Frasier, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Oh, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. Oh, my. Niles, Sharon Caviar.